Hi, this is Katrine Singh Baba. I teach English at a local community college, and no one in high school was more important to me than the woman you're about to hear. Stay tuned for episode six of the Point of Learning podcast. On today's show, Maureen Mazaris, an expert on the social and emotional worlds of adolescence. The need for independence has to be preceded with attempts at independence, which for parents and kids are often awkward and sometimes angry. Uh, There are not a lot of kids that become fully independent without some strife with their parents. We'll learn some of what she's figured out over the course of her career. Where families have strong cultural bonds or, or strong family bonds, that's probably the, 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 one of the biggest assets you have in the bank of living, is that you, you, you're, you're validated by your community. She's worked with parents for 40 years, and the subject still fascinates her. The common theme in everything I read is the, is the, parenting, the parenting out of fear for your child's safety, is that constant fear. Of, is my child safe? Is, are they going to be okay? That, and it comes from school violence. It comes from 9-11. It comes from Columbine. It comes from all those places. It comes from night after night after night of seeing all kinds of things happening to kids. And I think that that creates an anxiety in parents that they might not even be aware of that says, I need to keep them safe. As you know, Point of Learning is a show about what and how and why we learn. Today we'll be learning from Maureen Mazaris, who has helped kids and parents of every age for 40 years. She began her career working with high-risk pregnant women in the neonatal intensive care unit of a hospital. There she began to recognize her ability and desire to help people who were feeling worried, anxious, and fearful. A counselor's counselor in many senses, Maureen is currently the Director of Counseling for the Westfield Public Schools in New Jersey. But for many years, as the Student Assistance Counselor, she provided specialized support to students and adults in crisis of all kinds. Breakups, terminal illness, addiction, divorce, suicide. She's been there for kids and families and staff at their saddest and angriest, in their worst possible times. She's listened and consoled, but also asked challenging questions and delivered hard truth when needed. Maureen was one of the first people I met when I joined the faculty of Westfield High School 20 years ago. I can remember clearly how she greeted us new staff members saying, you matter to kids. Throughout the 18 years I spent at Westfield High School, I had the opportunity to see how Maureen kept and continues to keep kids at the center of her work and at the center of any school or district level decision making she's a part of. As someone who has relied on Maureen's guidance and friendship more times than I can count, I'm delighted to share some highlights from my conversation last month with this extraordinarily talented and wise counselor. This episode will be of special interest to anyone who works with teens, but also those courageous enough to try to raise them. Parents and families, listen up. Act 1. 
kids today. Parents and teachers get frustrated. That's one word. <laughs> with teenagers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We sometimes begin sentences with exclamations like, kids today, implying, of course, that there's something fundamentally different mm -hmm. about this species than when we were adolescents. Mm -hmm. In your experience and in your professional practice, what if anything has changed mm -hmm. about the social and emotional lives of high school aged kids mm -hmm. and what hasn't? I think that there are fundamental tasks of adolescence that will never change. Identity, connection, um, validation, um, and with that comes experimentation and all. And I think that has always been true. Um, at least, well, I don't, as far as my life Experimentation, history. Experimentation, you mean like pushing borders. Pushing trying, borders. Trying, trying things out. Trying things on, whether it's, um, you know, cutting your hair or not cutting your hair, whether it's bobby socks or whether it's mohawks at one point or whether it's piercings or whether it's, you know, sexual experimentation, which is, is more openly talked about. I think that that has always been part of it, and I, and, I, and I don't think that ever should go away. I think it's an essential component of adolescence, and it happens in schools. I think it's almost built in in schools because of the ways that schools um, contain kids and the ways in which school sometimes offers obvious routes to go. I can go there, or I can be that, or I can join this, and it's, it's, it provides opportunities for that kind of identity search, but it also is very confining and constricting. The search, the need for independence has to be preceded with attempts at independence, which for parents and kids are often awkward and sometimes angry. Uh, there are not a lot of kids that become fully independent without some strife with their parents. Some, why? I don't want to do it that way. Well, you're grounded. No, you're not. Th those kinds of things. But I do think that a couple of things have changed rapidly, really rapidly in the past, maybe, I, maybe 15 years, I don't know. The ways in which adolescence has been forced down. The idea that, that there are 10-year-olds struggling with those issues that maybe were better struggled with at 16. I think that we have a lot of kids in, in things, experiencing not just activities, but the feelings that go with those activities much earlier. When I go to the middle schools, I watch and I hear the, the discussions, the language, the relationships of, a, of a, an 11-year-old, and I think, wow, you're young. You're young to be, to be having those experiences. And I, and I think the other thing that has changed, parenting has changed more than anything. The intense nature of the parent-child relationship and the intense need in, in all communities, but in some more than others, to, to provide for your child that clear path to whatever it is you think they need to get or be to be successful. And I, and I think you know, my view, my experience is very much contained by the community that I have worked in for a very long time. And I, and I have to acknowledge that. I have worked in a small, um, affluent suburban school district for a very long time. But I also see, as, you know, as, as, we, as, as you listen and you try to learn, that same urgency. You know, Black Lives Matter or um, 
Moms Against Guns is, is parents trying to protect children from a world that they don't necessarily feel is safe, where they don't, where they don't go to bed at night trusting that they'll be okay in this world. And I think that sense of anxiety affects kids. You know, first they were helicopter parents. Now we call parents lawnmower parents. Parents whose primary purpose in life is to plow the road so that there is never a bump in a child's road. And I think that is significantly different than parenting in other places and, and certainly parenting in other generations. So I think that that has created a kind of anxiety for kids, um, a kind of performance anxiety, a kind of fearfulness that creates a lot of um, turmoil inside kids. And I think probably in my last 10 years, that is what I have dealt with more than anything, is kids who can't handle the anxiety of not being that kid. So some of that anxiety, if I'm understanding it, uh, from, the, from the way you're explaining it, is, is brought about or abetted by some of the parents' mm -hmm. parents' maneuvers mm -hmm. uh, that may be well-intentioned. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. but complicate things for kids mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. Most of my reading now is about parenting and it's about the world of adolescence and I, and I think the one thing that, that's the common theme in everything I read is, that, is the, parenting, the parenting out of fear for your child's safety. Is huh. that constant fear of, is my child safe? Is, are they going to be okay? That, and it comes from school violence. It comes from 9-11, it comes from Columbine, it comes from all those places. It comes from night after night after night of seeing all kinds of things happening to kids. And I think that that creates an anxiety in parents that they might not even be aware of that says, I need to keep them safe, I need to protect them. And their safety often, ensuring their safety translates into, I need to make everything perfect, I need to fix it. I need to fix it. And as a result, I, don't, I think that we threaten kids' resilience which is my new favorite word. Resilience in kids as in adults is marked by the ability to recover from setbacks, adapt well to change, and keep going in the face of adversity. Act two, a few givens of adolescent development. Everybody's a little different, of course, but there's some common aspects of adolescence that it can be very helpful for parents, teachers, counselors, employers, and friends of teens and young adults to keep in mind. For instance, one helpful fact Maureen encouraged me to remember is that kids develop at different rates. Not just one kid as compared to another, like who hits their growth spurt first, but different dimensions of a given kid's personality physical growth as opposed to intellectual growth, as opposed to social and emotional growth. These different facets can occur within a given kid at quite different speeds. So a freshman might act much younger than he looks because right now he's physically more developed than he is emotionally. In fact, some current neurological research suggests that some people may not become adult in terms of brain development until as late as age 25. So it's critical for everyone to remember that there's more to me than what you see. I asked Maureen to talk about some of these quote-unquote givens of adolescent development and contrast some of the features of adulthood that can sometimes make it difficult for adults to remember what it was like to be a teen. Uh, 
She starts with two of my favorites. One she calls the personal fable, which is basically the normal adolescent conviction that nobody's life is quite the same as mine. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I think that as a teenager, you, you believed that your story is the only story in the world. It's the, it, your, your life is the hardest. It's the best, it's the hardest. You're the prettiest, you're the ugliest. It's, it's all lived in the, in, the, um, in the superlative adjective. Number two, she calls the invisible audience, which is the suspicion that everybody's always watching. They definitely know, for instance, that you're wearing those jeans for the second time this week. And it's all lived in the, in the notion that everybody is looking at me and I, my mistakes are so public and my choices are so obvious. I would hope that when you get to be an adult, you realize that you are not the only person in the world and that there is, you, you share experience. That one of the things that, that you bring to your whatever it is you do, your marriage, your family, your friendships, is a common experience, and so you become much more comfortable with that. Identity takes time to develop. A caring family helps. A caring community helps. I also think, you would hope, that as you get to mature, that you become comfortable with, you know who you are. You're comfortable with who you are, and you're comfortable being who you are in the presence of somebody who's not exactly like you. Where families have strong cultural bonds or, or strong family bonds, that's probably the, 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 one of the biggest assets you have in the bank of living, is that you, you, you're, you're validated by your community, which teenagers don't always feel. They feel they're validated by their community as long as they, they're like the community. You know, they're exactly like them. I think as an adult, you might see that a little bit, a little bit more genuinely. The other thing, though, is I, I don't, I'm not sure that every adult leaves their teenagers behind them. I think that a lot of us bring some of that with us. We learn to live with it. We learn to put it in the context of time. You know, one of the hardest things for a kid to do is put what they're experiencing in the context of time because they don't have a lot of time. How can I say to a 12-year-old, Oh, you're going to get over this. You're going to get through this someday. You're going to come out on the other side when they, when I say to them 10 years from now, and they look at you and say, 10 years from now, what about tomorrow? What, I, can't get, I can't do this tomorrow. So you would hope that an adult has the perspective of experience. And I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest advantage. Let's take an adult who loses a parent. It's always terrible. And, and the loss of someone you love is, is not quantifiable, it's not measurable, and it's certainly not comparable. So, but I think as an adult, you have a better concept of the fact that death happens, at least you hope you do. You also have more years to have enjoyed the relationship than you did when you, was when you were 15. But it, so you take that experience of prior loss, you, you maybe you lost a grandparent, maybe you lost your dog, and you use that experience to inform your ability to manage or to cope with whatever comes now. A kid doesn't have that experience, ever. Um, especially if they have been sheltered from those experiences, which is what we're seeing now. Speaking of challenges related to the perspective that time can provide, another important given of teen development is sometimes called now, not now. 
I think the other part of adolescence is, is the notion of now and not now. Um, if it's not happening now, it's not happening. And if it is happening now, it's never gonna end. And I think that's very adolescent and, and can, make, can make a day for a student or a kid at home eternal. Let's go back for a sec to the idea of the personal fable and explore one implication for teens and talking with teens and everybody else. The personal fable, we call it. which I love. The personal fable, it's my life. It's the most important life and it is, it's the most, the most in any way I'm living it right now. It's the most beautiful, it's the most horrendous, it's the most. You um, could never understand me. No. You so so you never say to a teenager, I know exactly yeah. how you feel because you just made them angry. I understand. You just made I them angry. What it was like when I yes. was and that, then they're saying, no, you don't, and you're not paying right. attention to me. And I think that's, I think that's actually true for people in yes. general. I, you know, I don't think we can. It's a bad idea to say I know exactly. Yeah, I know, and so Stop therefore, talking. yeah, I know what you mean. Right, and and so sometimes I've even no, I've learned no. to say I I can't I don't begin to understand how you're, what's happening right now, how you're feeling, or or you know how what your family is going through, but I'm I'll, if you want to talk about it, I'm here. If you don't want to talk about it, just know I'm thinking about you. Let me know if yeah. there's any. But it's I think that dismisses a lot of people because. Sure. And we do that. Most people who do that do it to ease their own discomfort, not yeah. necessarily the person. They think they're helping the person, oh, but they're I, not. I remember. One other common feature of teen development is a sharpening of a sense of justice in the sense of right, wrong, fair, unfair. Now, toddlers will sometimes declaim events as fair or unfair, of course, but with adolescence comes increased ability to reason about the world. So it's often during teenage years, for example, that kids begin to express an interest in political issues, sometimes hewing close to their parents' ideas, sometimes defining themselves in opposition to those ideas. I think the idea of justice is, um, well, I, I'm, I, I think it's very adolescent. The confusion between um, fair and even yeah. is, is really key. How do, you, how do you explain those things to be like when you do peer counseling mm -hmm. or, you know, if you're talking to two kids who are yeah. trying to mediate? Uh, well, you know, so I think the first thing unfair. I will say to them is what about this feels unfair? Where do you see the, where do you see the unfairness? Okay. Where do you see and what would seem fair to you? And then, and then we will talk about that fair is uh -huh. not, fair is not same. You know, if we want, um, sometimes depending upon depending upon how concrete they are or what they, you know, if I want it to be fair, that doesn't mean we each get twenty dollars. Because if you have fifty to begin with, and this person has twenty, fair means they get thirty. You don't get anything, yeah. and that that's very infuriating for kids. <laughs> but it's also it's 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 introducing a concept of of justice, and it's also the i the idea that fairness isn't guaranteed. And that's the other thing, is that I have a right to fair. I have a right to those kinds of things. And to explain, and that, that's all, that's again, part of the resilience. Resilience is, is understanding that it isn't always fair. That it can't, it won't always be even. It won't always be just. But how do you manage the injustice in a way that allows you to continue to grow and not get stuck 
in your anger or your frustration. So sometimes I'll simply say it just isn't always fair. I wish it was, but it isn't always fair. How could it feel fairer? Because that's the other thing. I, I think that the world of adolescence and the world in general is, is getting more and more, um, the realm of, of black and white is getting, the range of gray has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so it's a world of either oh. or. Oh. And sometimes it's about saying, no, it's both. Just check Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. either or. And I, and I think, you know, if you bring up Facebook, I, part of, the, of Facebook and adolescence is the, this idea of, of the perfect life, of the perfect persona. And, you, you know, you can present yourself any way you want on Facebook. And that makes, or Instagram, or whichever one. And then that makes other people try to measure their life by that snippet of your life that creates a tremendous amount of anxiety and The snippet of your life that you have assiduously curated. Correct. For public presentation. Correct. Yes, yes. And so, how real is that? Act 3. Some Basics of Connecting with Kids In the spring of 2000, I took the most important school-based professional development course of my career. It was called simply Connecting with Students, and it was taught by Maureen and a middle school counselor named Carol Gerson and Kaz Jakubik, who was then Director of Guidance at Westfield High School. The premise was that understanding some basics of what skilled counselors do in conversations with kids could be helpful for anybody, especially anybody working with teens, to understand. Now, of course, it's important to remember that you are still an amateur if you're not formally trained in counseling. However, as I've worked with parents and families over the years to recognize that raising a teenager is a lot like trying to nail jello to a tree, and you are not alone in feeling this way, I've continually benefited from the strategies and techniques that I learned in that class. What kinds of questions mm-hmm. do you find most powerful in situations where you really want to connect with somebody mm-hmm. else? My favorite question with kids in meeting a kid for the first time would be, I'd like to, to know a little bit about you. So tell me who you are, but, but don't tell me what you do. And I would say that eight times out of 10, the response would be a deep, long-lasting silence. Um, because the tendency is to say, I'm this, I belong to this, I do this, I live here, I do that. And, and asking someone to tell you a little bit about, share something about yourself, about who you are. It changes, it changes forever the kinds of conversations you have with that person. But you don't get to tell me that you're a football player. No, you don't. That you're in the orchestra. Or where you or, live, or, or, or yeah. no, or what your grades are, mm-hmm. or where you're gonna go to college, mm-hmm. anything like that. But tell me who you are. And it, it's, it's really been probably one of the most effective questions I've ever asked. And sometimes it's, I, I think you're having a hard time with, with this. So we don't have to do it today, but the next time we meet, you know, can you think about that a little bit? Because I'd really like to know who you are. I'd really, and, and I think that has really given kids, um, it's a bit of a challenge, 
but I think it's given them permission to talk about things beyond labels and, and those kinds of things. Sometimes they'll say, I'm a good friend. So as a good friend, tell me what that means to be a good friend. What, yeah. And do you have good friends? Because that will bring us to the discussion of, I don't, or I do, or, but they're not as good a friend to me as I am to them, or yes, but they don't really know who I am. I'm angry, I'm confused. They'll often go to labels, but they'll say I'm a son or a daughter, and I will say to them, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a daughter in your family? I had a great mentor once, and you know him, and um, he, the thing he taught me was to remember that everybody has a story to tell. And so sometimes I will say to a kid, what's your story? Where do you want to begin? Do you want to begin at birth? Where do you want to begin last week? But what's your story? Um, and then really believing when you're sitting with them and showing them in all the ways that you show somebody that I, I am listening to your story. What are the, some of the kinds of things that you try to keep in mind mm -hmm. as you prepare for um, mm -hmm. or participate in mm -hmm. a meaningful conversation? That it's a conversation where you're trying to connect with somebody as an empathic mm -hmm. uh, listener. I think, you know, I, I think in, in early trainings as a counselor, you go to the obvious, you know, you establish a, a safe space. You, you, take, you pay careful attention to your seating arrangement. You know, you never talk to a kid across a desk because the barrier is real. Okay. The barrier is real, and, and especially in a school setting, behind the desk comes with a, you know, a hint of authority. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you want to establish a room that, or a space that feels quiet, that feels private. Um, I think you want to really get a sense early on about the, the comfort of the person that you're meeting with. If it's a person that you're meeting for the first time, I always invite them to take a seat. And then what I do is I sit, and then I invite them to sit in any seat in the room that they choose. And they'll always tell me by the distance yeah. how, how close they wanna to get to me. I think that after a while, you get a sense of how long this meeting should go. Sometimes you can do some really good work in 20 minutes because that's all that the student, that's all the kid can handle right now. And then sometimes you forget the bell and you go for an hour. It depends on where, you, where you're at. You do want to know a little bit about, about their background and their attitudes um, and values towards counseling and acknowledge that in the beginning. Um, I think that one of the things that, that you need to do with anybody is to really, really um, go over the boundaries. And, and the promise of confidentiality and what that means. Um, and, then, and then mean it. <laughs> you really gotta mean it. Because Maureen has counseled probably as many parents as kids over the years, I asked if there was anything fundamentally different in her approach when she deals with people of different ages. The basic premise doesn't change in, in that you, you, you establish an atmosphere that says I'm listening, I'm attending, I'm really attending, I'm non-judgmental, um, that I'm going to listen for the purpose of listening, not for the purpose of reacting or responding, not for the purpose of advising, and then we'll, we'll talk in whatever way makes sense for us to talk. I think the basic fundamental principles don't change. You know, if I'm talking to a six-year-old, I'll get down on the floor. 
Mm-hmm. Or I might talk to a six-year-old while we play with blocks, or we play with Legos, or we, you know, we might. Or I might talk with a, a hyperactive kid while we walk instead of while we sit. Sure. Um, and I might choose to walk side by side instead of face to face because that allows you a certain degree of comfort. Often use that when I'm talking to boys. Yeah, boys especially. And, you know, dealing with fathers is very different than dealing with mothers. But the the fundamental practice of how can I help? Or what is it what what why are you here? What can what can we do together that's gonna seem helpful? What's happening in your life? What brings you here? Um it remains the same. I think it remains the same. One of the things that you taught me to mm-hmm. ask mm-hmm. when I was trying to sort out the difference, whether I was listening to a student or mm-hmm. a colleague mm-hmm. um, who was upset about something, mm-hmm. you know, and listening for a while, but trying to sort out the difference between somebody who was just venting mm-hmm. and somebody who you know, really might have a, you know, a complaint or a difficulty mm-hmm. that warranted further mm-hmm. investigation mm-hmm. for their action of some kind was the question, how might this be different? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you want to change? You've got mm-hmm. these things that you're upset about right now, mm-hmm. but really, mm-hmm. what would you like to see happen? Mm-hmm. And that's been such a useful mm-hmm. go-to. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm presenting this as a question to you right now. It's just <laughs> saying thank you for <laughs> saying that because welcome. it's been useful. Yeah, it is very useful. At various different points mm-hmm. that tell the difference between are you really because that's something that we need to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But you as the interlocutor, you as the listening other mm-hmm. and somebody who wants to care for that person, mm-hmm. you can be blindsided by that request sometimes mm-hmm. and say like, how do I navigate this conversation? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's important to be able to say, well, are you asking me to do something or are you just asking me to listen? And that's, that's an important distinction is, is to be able to, to figure out in the moment even if the moment is an hour, what what are, what should be happening right now? And I and I think one of the one of the challenging things is um, where's the pivotal moment? Right? Where how do you how do you identify the time that you can start to move this in a different direction? And I think that's hard sometimes. And I, and I think sometimes it happens almost naturally when a person has the opportunity to vent or to cry or to you know, be angry, the release of emotion has an, sometimes an almost natural calming down. You know, it, and then you, you can see that, sure. okay, we're at a moment now where, where we can talk about something different. But sometimes you don't see that. Sometimes, so sometimes you have to say, is this, is this a time, is this a person or a time and a place where I can say, we need to stop. You need to stop, you need to take a breath. Let's walk around the block. And we need to take a little walk and see if walking in silence will allow you to calm down in a way that will allow us to have a conversation. I think therapeutically as a counselor, you begin to know when that person will not ever be able to do that with you in that space. And then it's very clinical. You know, when you have that kind of overwhelming anxiety in a kid that no matter what you do, it doesn't dissipate. It can't be brought down enough to get into what 
can I help you with what would you like to happen next? Yeah. You have to know that. And, and, and I think that's also very hard because when you're a really good listener and you want to help a kid, you can find yourself being a listener and listening and listening, but it's not affecting anything. It's almost not helpful. And that's really hard to do. So I, I think that seeing, assessing, looking for that pivotal moment, when can, when can I move this into a more helpful direction without invalidating the feelings, without invalidating the spirit, the, 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 the experience of the person. But I, and when it, when it happens, it's wonderful, but it doesn't always happen. And sometimes you have to know that. And finally, act four, about six minutes of advanced guidance on the topics of suicide, referral networks, and owning vulnerability. During her years as the student assistance counselor, Maureen was the go-to person in the building for certain kinds of crises, including if a student might be contemplating suicide. Because suicide, of course, remains an important issue for schools and school systems, let alone parents and families. I asked about how Maureen viewed this model of a specialized counselor, or SAC, today. I don't think any school can afford to rely on one person for anything. Um, in the state of New Jersey, every teacher, every staff member in, in the district is required to have suicide training, suicide prevention training, in order to be able to respond to kids, in, to, to be able to listen, to identify, to refer. Not in, listen, identify, refer. So I think that whether a school has a SAC or not is, it's, it's not an issue. It's lovely if you do. But you can't rely on that person. You have to have a system in place. You have to have a team, an organized response practice for suicide identification, intervention, and referral that cannot rely on one person. Because, especially now, I mean, now most of the suicide flags that pop up don't pop up in school anymore. They pop up in an email to a teacher or a, uh, an, an Instagram or a, a random post. And so that notion that a SAC is sitting in their home 24 hours a day ready to respond is not gonna fly, it doesn't work. So who else is there? Who's your team? Who's your suicide intervention team? And it can be led by one person and it, that one person can be responsible for training, but you can't put that on one person anymore. It's, it's, it's too scary and it's too dangerous to do that because circumstances have changed so much. I think that there are a lot of schools in this country that don't have a SAC and they have a suicide prevention intervention plan that works very, very well. Um, but you have to know what it is. About 10 years ago when I needed some therapy, Maureen was able to recommend someone she knew would be a great match for me. One of Maureen's strengths as a counselor and director of guidance is that she's familiar with dozens of therapists, local and not so local. I asked her how important it is for any counselor to cultivate that referral network. I think it's essential. And I think it's essential because we don't have in, in any school system the, the breadth of expertise that we would need. And so I think that there's an urgency to have a strong referral network I think it's also important to have a strong referral network that takes you beyond 
the familiar. I mean, you have, especially now with, with insurance the way it is and the net, your, your net has to be much wider. And, and I think sometimes we have to get on the phone and interview people. I mean, I've, yeah. I've called people, like, you know, they'll send me a card and say, would you like to please refer? And I will call them and have them come in and meet with them and, and find out what, you know, what their particular... Find out what they really... Uh, yeah, and find out what their area of expertise yeah. are yeah. and, you know, what, what is your relationship with yeah. adolescents. One of the most critical things, if you have a person in need and a person in crisis, a person who really is, who needs individual therapy, um, a program, whatever, when you get that person at that point when they are ready, what you don't want to do is send them to the wrong person because you may not get them back. So you need to be able to send them to a person that you feel will be a good match for them. But also, I mean, one of the things that's, that's worked well for me is to be able to call that person and saying, I'm referring someone to you. And with their permission, these are some of the things that, some of the reasons why I'm sending them your way. Because that, that first cold visit is so hard for some people. It's, sure. And if it doesn't go well, they don't go back. I so I think a, a referral system is very important. I also think that as a school-based counselor and even a private practitioner, knowing when you're not that person anymore is really important. And when I look back on my career, I think that there are, I can think of many times when I should have referred sooner. I should not have been the lifeline for as long as I was because because, because you get too close to it, you get too connected, you also build a false sense in that person that there's only one person in the world that can help them, and, and that's really, you can be really careful about that. As we were finishing our conversation, I asked if there was an issue she'd wanted to address that I hadn't asked about. I, I think that we still have to work hard at the stigma around mental illness or emotional weakness because I still think that there's, there's a judgment there. Um, and, and be okay with the idea of vulnerability. And, um, I, and I think we still have to work hard at that. And how to begin. Whether you're a teacher or a counselor, honor your own set of vulnerabilities, insecurities, feelings, uncertainties, and not, um, not sweep them away because you're so busy taking care of everybody else's which could be a good intent and also an avoidance tactic. Maureen shared some about her own support network, uh, how she had an excellent supervisor when she was starting out who helped her think through difficult cases, and how she continues to consult with other professionals about recommendations she's making. She was candid about some of the questions she continues to ask herself regularly. Here's one. I have to step back and say, are you the real deal? Or are you pretending to be the real deal? or? Where, where do you need to own your own imperfection or your own anxiety? It's not easy. I, 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 think, I think I'm good at what I do. I can't believe I said that on tape, but I do believe I'm good at what I do. Um, and that's nice. But? I have to be willing to say, I wasn't so good at what I do today. So I think the last thing I would talk, I would say to anybody in the helping profession, whether you're helping, you're helping your, your family, your neighbor, your your student, your whatever, is that sometimes as the helper, you can screw it up too. So self-assessment's not a bad thing. That's it for this month. 
My great thanks to my dear friend Maureen, who you may have inferred is a huge James Taylor fan. I asked some friends to supply stylized takes on some JT hits for this episode's soundtrack. So thanks so much to guitarists Justin Rosin and Jason Grant, and to pianist Gil Scott Chapman for their original recordings. Thanks as always to Schaefer James for allowing me to use his music to open and end the show. And thanks to you for listening, subscribing through iTunes. Oh, just do it already. And sharing the word about this program to anyone interested in what and how and why we learn. See you next month. True or false? (laughs) When in doubt, listen. Oh, true. True beyond true. You can't go wrong when you listen. Have I said that enough? (laughs) You can listen too long, but you can't go wrong by listening.